Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Another episode of Believe in Kentucky alongside the UK legend, the UK Athletics Hall of Famer, Double Zero himself, Tony Dell. What's going on, TD? Nothing much, man. I am happy and proud uh, to be here today. Like I said, special moment, man. We have a an exciting guest from uh, from Jones County. Absolutely. Let's welcome in. Absolutely. You know, George is on because I'm I'm in Georgia right now. John T. John T. Edges the edge. I gotta I gotta get the uh look by the time I read the intro of everything he's accomplished, T D it'll basically be time for him to go. He'll be like, I know, man. Time, you know, I, 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 I didn't want to get into all the things he had accomplished, man, because you know what? When you accomplish that many things, like I said, he has a shindler list of, of all of his accomplishments, and that's the one thing I can say about someone who's done that that kind of body work for so long and been passionate about it is that, you know, he loves what he does. Absolutely. So I, I'll just maybe work him in as we go, but uh, author, uh, host of True South on the SEC network. And that's what we're definitely going to talk a lot about that. Right. I'm a huge fan of the show, watching all the different cities and towns you go through. And then you went to Brownsville, Tennessee. We're fresh off the Brownsville, Tennessee episode, which is hometown of Tony Delk himself. So we can't wait to get into all that with you right now. So thank you so much for joining us, John T. My pleasure. I, I, y'all are kind people and generous people. And I'm happy to talk Brownsville, especially with Tony, because I'm, I'm new to it. He knows it better than I do. I just showed up with cameras. Right, right. And like I said, we, we just had, you know, just so many phenomenal people and growing up in that small town, you know, it was, there was so much connection and, even during my middle school, high school, and college, and NBA career, I mean, it was – it always felt great just to go back to Brownsville, Tennessee. And when I tell people, like, where are you from? I'm like 40 minutes from Memphis, in between Memphis and Jackson. And I kind of like, you know, I was kind of putting Brownsville on the map. I'm like, no, dude. People say, oh, you play basketball in Memphis. I'm like, no, I'm from Brownsville. So I was always a homegrown kid that really just loved being there. And when you have, you know, uh, great food, there's still places that I go to when I – I go back uh, to Brownsville now, you know, there's still, still Helens, you know, it's funny about trip that, uh, you know, back probably in the early eighties, my mom was buying catfish. Like I love catfish and I never knew where she was getting it from. She was like, I'm getting it from the fish market. I'm thinking like, okay, cool. So I didn't know he was getting this fish from, from no, it was fresh. Like it was, I was like, okay, she's going up there. She's getting fish and we were cooking. Like we probably would have a fish fried, every Saturday. And that's what made me fall in love with, with, uh, with catfish. And like I said, you know, another person that loves his job. And when you're in a small town and sometimes when people fall on hard times, you still have to figure a way to help those people out. And what usually happens, those people become your friends, you know? So when you go through, I know you just been going through all these different cities and, you know, you've come to one of these small towns, we are a community. And when people fall on hard times, we figure a way to help them out. I really heard that from the people in Brownsville I met making the show and 
the day after the show ran. So the show ran for the first time on SCC Network um, last week, and it's done some replays since then. And um, Larry Davis, who owns that fish market where your mama bought fish, Tony, he told me he ran into Helen Turner in the grocery store. So, <laughs> you know, and they started talking about the show and, and what they learned about each other during the show, which right. is it's a perfect small town moment. Like, you know, there are these people who do, I think heroic things in that town, mm-hmm. feeding people for a really reasonable amount of money, right. feeding something really good. Um, but recognizing that, you know, not everybody's got a lot of money to shell out. Right. And they talk about this as their responsibilities to feed people good food, you know, cheap. And, and I admire the heck out of that. And that's, anyway. the, and that's the one thing I can always, you know, I tell Vinny when I go back home, you know, there's still certain places that I hit because they have been, they're loyal to the community. And when you can, uh, can find you know, store owners, restaurant owners that understand that you have to have a relationship with the locals. You know, it's not about always making money, but it's about having a friendship. You never know, like I say, as I said earlier, people do fall on hard times. And especially during this COVID-19, there were so many families that were, that were stricken by this that, you know, you still have to go and, like I say, you still want to get a good meal. But in Brownsville, it's going to come at a reasonable price. And even if you don't have it, I, I can't even tell you how many, how many times probably Miss Helen uh, Davis, those those people have gone in their pockets, you know, just to help other people out. Because what what'll happen? It'll come full circle. You're going to get that money back in time. You know, when you do a good deed, I guarantee you, you know, it comes back. And that's the one thing I always loved about when I would always go home is that it made me feel like, you know, what I'm safe in my home in my hometown. I never felt like I had to go and do anything outside of ordinary or have an entourage of people. I my friends that I grew up in elementary, middle school, and high school are still my friends today. You know, still people, I can pick up the phone and call them. They can call me. Even during my, the height of my NBA career, they would tell you, Tony Duck is still the same person. Nothing changed about me. Well, that's a great base to have. Like, we both are small-town boys. Like, you don't outgrow that. You know, you really don't. You, you, you depend on that because you also know the responsibilities you have, those people in your small town. Yeah, that helps as you grow. It matters. It does. You know, I think that's the important importance about understanding who you are, you know, and I I think, you know, the one, the one thing my mom, she left me with was that be humble, be respectful, and always have a higher power who you believe in. So I just took that model with me as I, you know, have gotten to my 46 years of life is that treat people the way you want to be treated. You know, when I have my kids, I tell my kids the same thing is that you have to respect people. You know, I tell my, as I have my basketball academy, I tell the kids, I say, you have to respect the police, the authority. I said, authority can, they can kill you. They can put you in jail. Uh, teachers, they can fail you. I say, coaches, they can kick you off the team. They can not play you. I say, and a stranger, they can kill you. So you have to respect that person in front of you. Cause if you don't know them, and even if you do know them, they're a human being just like you are. So don't think you're above and beyond them because, okay, now, I have, uh, I've gained some fame, I have money and power, is that people can still take your life if that's how they feel and they feel like you have disrespected them. So this is a different generation of kids that we're dealing with, um, and especially with social, social media. You know, there's a lot more distraction for them than it was with us when we were growing up. Yeah, it's true. 
I a lot more negotiations to deal with. Yeah. I'm sorry, Vinny, you were trying to say something. I just got to go back to that before we get off of, of Larry Davis and the, the fish market, you know, how you guys, he, he didn't even know what he's going to do from day to day or how much fish he's going to have to sell, how much fish the fishermen were going to bring in. And even though he had to figure it out daily, he still refused to raise his prices. He said, my prices are going to be the same during this pandemic as they were. So everybody in town could know that they could come there without him jacking up the prices and making it hard for them. So he, he didn't even know where his next check was coming from, but he wasn't about to stick it to his customers. I just, I thought that was really, really cool. It was amazing to me too. Like going into that show, I knew Helen really well. I'd known Helen for over a decade, maybe close to 20 years. Um, but I didn't know Larry at all. And Helen, um, introduced me to Larry. I'd stop by Larry's place a few times. I got to drive to Brownsville to get barbecue and my son and I would. And then on the way home, we'd stop by city fish market that Larry owns and buy some buffalo or cat. And then like, you know, Tony was talking about with his mama cooking catfish, we'd cook catfish on a Saturday night or buffalo on a Saturday night. But talking to Larry about the way he cares for people and the way he controls the prices, not so he can make more money to Tony's point, but so he can keep his prices down so everybody can afford them. And the way he controls the, the supply chain, I'm like, that's sophisticated thinking. Like, listen, right. I don't wanna have to deal with a, with a meat packing plant in the Midwest that's gonna get hit by COVID and the prices are gonna skyrocket. I'm pulling everything out of Real Foot Lake, you know, less than an hour drive away from me. And I know what my prices are gonna be week to week. I don't know how many catfish I'm going to get. I don't know if I'm going to get big ones or little ones. Got John. John froze up a little bit. Everybody froze. I'm still here. I got you, V. I'm with you, brother. That that real foot lake, man. I didn't know lakes in Tennessee was was kind of marshy and swampy looking like that either. You know what? I I, I kind of knew it, but it was uh. You got your back, JT. There you go, man. But, yeah. but you know, uh, but, but to your point, JT, he didn't price gouge during the pandemic, you know, and, and that's, a, like I said, that's, that's prideful, it's, it's respectful, and, yeah. you know, those relationships probably even get, they grew stronger. You know what I'm saying? Because wow. there were so many different businesses and, and opportun- opportunists, uh, people out there that took advantage of, of the pandemic. And mm-hmm. when I heard that, I was like, man, that's Browns with for you though like nothing i can tell you that's the one thing i do love about going back is just that how loyal those people have been for all those years and what they do is they do a great job of supporting local owned businesses and you know i know it was rest you know it was restaurants but i was telling denny what's you know my um my first cousin Delk's body shop has probably been in business for man 30 30 30 plus years and uh when you have a local support, your your business have a chance to to, to last over time, over decades. Because you you think about business now, they might come and go, but when the local people are involved and they're heavily supporting you, is that that allows your business to go into your kids? You know, because that's the one thing that surprised surprised me about Helen is that you know I know her son Andre, and I'm like, man, you're not helping your mama down here, but she cooks like I said, she cooks all day long and i didn't even know she was you know and i i didn't know what time she got up but i'm like 
when she would drive, there, there would be people just waiting on her to drive up, you know, so we can just yeah. sit there and uh, you would have people outside the restaurant, you know, just really just having the casual conversation. I mean, it's just a town like that where, like I said earlier, I, I feel safe and you can just pretty much have conversation with anyone that comes up. That, that idea of a small town and owning a business in a small town, that's a really important role to play. And it, you know, because in a town like Brownsville, like the agricultural economy is fading and mm-hmm. like you got to figure out your own gig, um, like Helen and Larry and, and like your cousin, because the jobs that previously employed people aren't as prevalent now in Brownsville. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even to your point, a, a couple of factories have closed down. You know, I, I remember right. some, some bigger factories that was that, you know, a lot of people there, you know, like so you graduated high school, you had a chance to get a good job, you know, in Brownsville. And that left probably 15, 20 years ago. So when we have our high school graduates, you know, I feel bad because I'm like, gosh, there, you know, there are no job opportunities here. So you have to leave Brownsville. And my mindset, even as I was coming up, I always wanted to live other places. Like I was, I knew I wasn't going to be in Brownsville my whole life. Now, not to say I wouldn't in 20 years, maybe go back because it still is home. My, my mom and dad are buried there, my sister. Um, so it's always going to be a, a place in my heart for Brownsville. No, no matter what city I play it in, where I'm living now, Brownsville will always be home. <laughs> How did you become familiar with Brownsville, John T. Because, like I said, like I was telling you before we started recording, I've driven through there once, and me and my wife were driving to Dallas, but we stopped in Memphis. I saw the sign on the interstate, Brownsville, and I was like, "Oh, that's where Tony Duck's from." And then we were driving on through. So, what? I know. Did you just go for the barbecue? What made you stop there the very first time? <laughs> that's enough. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's that good of a barbecue, but that's the thing about it. Um, and also for, you know, so I live an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes south of Brownsville in Oxford, Mississippi. And uh, that whole belt up there, like Brownsville and Lexington and those kinds of towns, there's good barbecue and has been good barbecue right. um, along that Highway 100 corridor for a long time. Um, so, like, for me, it was going there the first time on a road trip, loving the barbecue realizing there was a woman, you know, as the pit master, which was interesting and different. Yes. Um, then getting to know Helen and she's sassy and funny and cackles when she laughs. She's real. Um, <laughs> and she's tough too. Like, you know, that, she is. that work is, is grueling. And yeah. so all those things that became like this place that I wanted to go back to and became the place now that our son, um, who's 19 now, you know, we showed pictures of him in the, in the show, but he took his friends up there. So three college age kids, they all went up to Helen's last weekend, drove up from here, went to get barbecue sandwiches, turned around and came back, you know? Yeah. I think they're smart. <laughs> well, no, you know what? It, it, it's, it's so funny you say that too, because, you know, as I was stating, like every time I came back from college, that was like my first stop. So it was there. Then I had I would go to Q Mart, I would get some fried chicken. And then I had I had another spot I would stop by. You know, so I had my my three little spots that when I came home that I would stop all I, I was faithfully stopping there. 
But, you know, every time I stopped by Miss Helen, you know, we would just actually sit down and I would talk to her because she was always yeah. wanting to know, like, how was school going? And, you know, she cared, you know, and that's, a, that's yeah. one of the things about a small town, a community that's, that's tight-knit is they really care about the kids, you know, especially with me not getting into trouble. And the one thing I just did, I, I love basketball. You know, I played it yeah. all over Brownsville, you know, and I tell people, I say, you know, you, we grew up poor, you know, we didn't have a car. So a lot of the places I played, I either rode my bike, I had to get a ride with someone or I walked. And even with my mom, we would go to uh, the grocery store. I think it was, um, wasn't Kroger's Big Star. And yeah. we would stop, we would stop there. And, um, and I tell people the story, I said, we had to walk back to the house with grocery in our hand. And I would have to stop because I'm like, mom, I was, I was probably like 12, maybe younger than that. And I would get tired. So she was like, put, put the groceries down, put the bags down. We would rest for a little bit. And then we'll start back walking again. And people really, even my kids don't even know. I'm like, you don't even know how poor we was growing up. But, you know, it was kind of like I was poor rich because I had older siblings. So whenever I needed a nice pair of shoes, a shirt, some Air Jordan, when they started coming out, I pick up the phone. I called my, my seven siblings. And I would get $20 from each of them. So by the time... Those shoes came out. I had enough money to buy them shoes. Everybody was like, man, how you get there, Jordan? Because I called my brother and sister. They were, they were adults. They had jobs. And they would, they would just look out for me like that. So it's, it's, it's a little town that every time I go back, you know, I'm always happy to, to, to be there. It is, it's, a little, it's, a, it's a lot different now because, you know, my mom and dad are deceased. But, you know, it was always a point in my life that after NBA season was done, I would always look so – I was so forward looking to coming – going back home, you know, going to the restaurant, seeing my family, seeing my friends. But, you know, it was always great to come home knowing that uh, my mom was going to be there, you know. And I was like, man, you... so when I go back now, it's a little bit, it's bittersweet. But once again, it's still going to be home because I still have uh, two siblings and two sisters that still live there. And then, like I said, so many friends, you know, we still stay in contact. So during your episode, you know, we always texting each other. It's like, man, everybody's on the phone like, oh, yeah. You remember this? You remember this? So we just going through the episode, but it was, it was so cool that it was about Brownsville and all of us still had a connection. And it's so funny, you know, as I talk about social media is that we all can be on a, on a device going back and forth with one another. Yeah. Yeah. It, it makes me think too, Tony, about the music for that episode. And I wonder if you already knew Valerie June, she was born in Jackson um, we used her music. There's this song, Working Woman's Blues, and she's a, mm -hmm. her voice almost sounds like she's from Appalachia, but she's from right there, and she's a, right. a black woman singing with that high, lonesome kind of sound. It's right. a, I love her music. Did you already yeah. know her? No, I, I didn't know her. I, you know, the, the, the biggest name that, that we, the, our claim to fame is, of course, Tina Turner. You know, everybody's yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like, yeah, Tina Turner, I'm like, no, she's from, uh, from that bush. You know what I'm saying? But, <laughs> But she, but it's crazy because she went to I think Harbor High in Brownsville, and some of the people who I'm still friends with to this day, you know, they they know her, they know they you know some of them are her family, and uh, you know, and I just always grew up thinking like, man, you know, Tina Turner's from Brownsville, and then I found like, no, she's from Nutbush, but but that's just right like ten minutes away from Brownsville, yeah. so you know, we'll we'll claim her, you know, no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, no one else really knows, but you know, it's just the the connection that we have there and um you know I, and even like with our sports our sports are like friday night friday night lights is just a big thing in brownsville it always has been 
But that's when, you know, everyone comes out and, you know, we show that local support. And, uh, you know, just that episode, I was like, you know, finally, you know, somebody paying a little respect to, uh, to the great cooks in Brownsville, Tennessee. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to do. One of the things that we talk about, Wright Thompson, who's the executive producer for the show, we were talking today about our favorite shows to make are about the small towns. Like we've made, I really love making our Memphis episode too, but small towns get you in a different way because you realize that fewer people are paying attention to that place and you get to pay attention to that place and you get to tell a story about that place and not everybody's telling. And that, that feels important to us and we really love doing it. Um, that um, the episode that we did, um, you know, in Kentucky, um, felt the same kind of way to pay attention to a small Kentucky town. Right. Turn people on those hamburgers, man. It, it, yeah, Lay Haze. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lay Haze, for sure. <laughs> I got to ask you, I'm, and I got to get back to the Memphis too, but just, you mentioned Wright Thompson, which excellent writer, just like you are, and you guys are teamed up together. When the idea for this show, True Stuff, was just a twinkle in y'all's eye, before yeah. the creative juices started flowing, what, how did it begin? What, who said what, who did what to get the ball rolling on this show? I mean, we, we've been friends for a good long while, right? And I have, and, and we would sit around and, and have, a, have a drink or eat a burger and talk about how we wanted to see a show about the South that looked like the South we know. Um, mm. that wasn't rooted in old stereotypes, that wasn't kind of corny, that, that looked at the South today um, and that we would watch and go, okay, they, they kind of got it right. And that, that's a pretty egotistical thing to say, but, but it's real. Like we got frustrated by seeing other shows and we wanted to try to get it right. Um, and we also just, I mean, it felt like this, moonshot that the SEC network let us take because when we first started talking to them about it, I thought we would end up doing a show about food and sports. They're like, no, 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 you can, you can, you can go as broad as you want. So (laughs) we ended up doing a show about kind of food and identity and sports is a backdrop for it, but it works on the SEC network. And that's the vision of the SEC to let us do it. I'm just kind of stunned and grateful about that. Uh, really so, 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 John, have you thought about incorporating the athletes as as you go to these different cities, or you just want to keep it keep it on the food side? Because I I think that that adds a little more interest to it. It's already interesting as it is, because you know, like I said, I was, I mean, I I, I was so locked in with with my friend because I was actually in Lexington, and uh, so I was I was telling everyone like, hey, the episode coming at ten, I need everybody to be quiet, sit down, and <laughs> the TV. So the, I looked up at the TV screen and. Um, it was just like a blank screen. I asked a dude, I said, I was like, Trey, are you going to cut the, uh, you're going to cut the uh, TV on? He's like, no, it's already, but the satellite was a little slow. It was a little bit behind. And uh, so finally the episode came on and I was in heaven and I was like, all right, I'm good now. But yeah, are you thinking about incorporating some, some other, yeah. other people, athletes, uh, entertainers? Yeah. I mean, that's, it's varied with each show, but like our second episode was Athens, Georgia. And there was James Brown on the sidelines back when he would play on the sidelines and sing Dooley's Junkyard Dogs. And you can see James Brown with his pompadour going right. up and down the sidelines. Um, I think we showed Herschel's 
debut moment, jumping over the guy, Tennessee, um, in that show too. So it's, it's varied show to show. We try not to have a formula. So um, I think we'll end up with more sports figures in the show as it goes. Mm-hmm. It's good to have the latitude, but just like sports, food's this kind of belief system in the South. Right. They've got that in common. I mean, it's the thing we connect over, like your team, your food. It's a part of your identity. And then also I think when you have, like, you know, athletes or entertainers, especially when they come back to these small towns, you have to wonder, like, where do they eat at? You know, and, yeah. and that's the one thing where, you know, I had my three or four places, but my mom was an unbelievable cook. And my sisters, you know, it's funny you said Miss Miss Helen's a grill master. Like, my sisters had gotten so good at, at barbecue that I would just come home and they would just grill for me. So, but a lot of that was learned from my mom, you right. know, who also was, you know, she was on that grill. And um, and, and I started taking some lessons from my sisters because you know, she would get up every holiday and she would start grilling around four, four, four thirty in the morning. And I remember I was down in Memphis. I had just left. Um, I was actually just coming back from gambling. I was, <laughs> I was in Mississippi <laughs> and it was, it was an early morning. So I dropped my friends off at the house and I got there. It's probably like four thirty or five. And my sister was already bringing out the charcoal. And I'm like, so this is how you get started. You start just early in the morning. I, I didn't even know what time she got started, but, I knew by by noon everybody was eating barbecue, <laughs> but yeah. you know, and, and so she had a little she had a little method that she went by, and then even as I started watching her, because one morning I just I just just I decided to stay out there. I just started watching her and helping her, uh, seeing how she prepared the meat, um, you know, and just how long she kept the um, the meat on. You know, she was like, "You can't constantly you can't constantly keep turning the meat." You got to go away, but it's, it's hard when you first start to watch your food and not want to flip the meat over. So as I was cooking my, the first time I grilled, I had the little small red grill, the one you go buy at Walmart. Yeah. And I must I, I poured a whole bag of charcoal. I'm like, man, you know, I'm going to cook this meat. When I tell you I had a fire about four feet high, <laughs> I, I, I was on my, I was on my way to the house. To go get the, I had to go with some water. I'm like, man, I'm about to, I'm about to set the uh, the apartment. Actually, I was at a town. I'm about to set the whole whole complex on fire, and finally I got that fire down. And uh, you know, so it's kind of like the first time you start. You know, you have to keep. It's like it's like shooting a free throw. Repetition. The more you do it, the better you got at it. So I eventually upgraded to a better grill, and yeah. then I became patient. Like when I put the meat on, make sure that you know it wasn't too hot, and then I kind of walked away. So that's the one thing it the patient part was, was kind of difficult in the beginning. I got to say, you know, you mentioned how, uh, you know, you just wanted to portray the South correctly when you went to these places. So I'm from Harlan County, Kentucky. So everybody watches everything critically. I know Tony watched this Brownsville episode with a critical eye. When Justified came out, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. watching it. And, it, you know, they, they mentioned in towns and communities from home, but then I just kept, I'm like, look, there's there's not that much shooting and killing that goes on in Harlan County, Kentucky. I'm like, they do not have that right at all. <laughs> We're not just walk, it's not the Wild West. We're not just blasting each other. In the, it's just, so they that wasn't right. And then I just got to where I just couldn't, I, just, I can't even watch it, man. That ain't, that's not how it is. So you made sure you portrayed the cities and towns 
properly and, and not stereotypical and you didn't get all kind of crazy with it? We tried. I mean, I'm, we get a lot of things wrong, too. I mean, I'm sure Tony could say, well, that's not the way I see Brownsville or right. you miss this thing or you miss that thing. And I, and I think we miss a lot. But, but I do think to your point, Vinny, like we're trying to sidestep those stereotypes. We're trying to see beyond – we're trying to be open ourselves because, you know, I grew up in Georgia. I now live in Oxford. Wright grew up in, in Clarksdale and now lives in Oxford. We both have traveled the South a lot, but we don't know everything. And when we go to a town, we try to listen to the people in the town and come without preconceived notions, but, and just listen. And a story should evolve that way. Um, and that's not too much to ask of no. us. Like, you know, that's like, exactly what we're supposed to do is to listen and i kind of i kind of wish go ahead man go v you got it you got it i just had a couple more real how do you how did you go about picking the cities and towns you were going to go to and then how'd you decide what people you're going to visit once you decided what cities and towns you're going to go to i mean it's it's basically right now argue i mean basically we'll come (laughs) up with a roster of possibilities and it's not really an argument but though like the food has to be unimpeachably good um, but there has to be a bigger story. Like, so Brownsville, if Helen had been there and Larry had been there and we'd had fish and barbecue, it's a great story, but for that minefield to be there and for it to be about somebody's vision in a town that, as Tony and I were talking about, is changing. It used to be an ag town, now it's become something else. Mm-hmm. It becomes a bigger study in what a small town can be. And that's what makes the show. It's like if there are two stories here on each side, there's a story about barbecue, there's a story about fish. In the middle, there's a story about identity, there's a story about something. Once we figure out what the middle is, then we know we have a story. And it's just, you know, it's sitting around talking. Um, that's the fun part. Um, it's the part I value so much because we're, we're looking for good food, we're looking for good people. We're also looking like what story can we tell each other about this place? That sounds kind of gushy, but that's kind of it. So when both of you are like sitting there brainstorming is that, you know, he might pick a city and let's say a, a small town in Tennessee, you might pick a small town in South Carolina. So do y'all have a coin flip on where y'all going to go? Or y'all just say, hey, man, I'll go your place. You go mine. How do y'all figure this out? Everything's consensus. Like we both got to agree. You know, okay. it's, it's, um, and then we'll take a scout trip. So I'll come up with a roster of like, here are six places and we'll go visit them. And we bring the director along too, Tim Horgan, and we go scout them ourselves. And I'll tell them, here's what you can expect. This is the places we're going. And, you know, they'll have input too and say, you know, I don't see visually how this is going to work, or I don't understand how this story will translate on TV. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of workshop it on the road as we travel. I think what also helps is it's so it's so authentic. You know, when you can get something that's authentic, it's not scripted, people can really relate to it. You know what I'm saying? Because it's real life. When you It's not like you watched a movie. Like, you went into someone's life. Like, that's what they do. It's part of, like, my, you know, it's like your upbringing almost. When you see something that they're passionate about, it's like, it's not like we're writing a movie here. Like, you know, it's, it's a real-life event for them because they've been living it. And even the people that come in, it's their life too. Because if you've gone to, to the fish market, you've gone to Helen's, I'm sure you're going 
on like probably hundreds of times. And even if you want to walk in and see a team of producers and cameras is that, you know, you don't even think about it. It's, this, this is routine to me. So I, I like the authenticity of it that makes it real. And it's easy for people who've seen it with their eyes. We can relate to that, especially in the small town. I think you bring light to small town for people who live in the city. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. It's, there's a responsibility. I mean, I kind of used that word a minute ago, but like somebody like Larry Davis, I don't think he'd been on television in that way before. And we had a real responsibility to him to help him feel comfortable, to tell his story in the best way possible, to help people understand how important the way he cares for people is. And, and uh, that took him trust in us too. And that's, that's a lot to give to a goofy kid like me, you know, comes busting in your place saying, I want to tell a story about you. Right. It takes a lot of trust on his part. It does. I, I text. I know we, we can't keep you much longer, John, but I'm going to squeeze a couple more in, John T. Sure. I text, I text Tony uh, after the episode it uh, played about Brownsville, and I told him that, you know, you did an episode about Memphis, and I said you was riding around with 8-Ball and MJG, <laughs> and you went to Orange Mound. So just, just what was that like, going to the hood of Memphis? <laughs> going to the mound, as they call it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm just happy you're here to tell the story, man, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> Most well, people don't know, but we're going to get into that, though. <laughs> they were, you know, they were a great lesson in this, too, because they have great pride in Orange Mound yes. and wanted people to see their Orange Mound, you know, that's not obscured by all the myths of Orange Mound, not, um, you know, a story not about violence, a story not about um, crime, a story about Orange Mound, the people who live there, the people who eat there, the people who cook there, the places they grew up, you know? Yeah. And, and it was like watching them being little kids driving this big old Escalade, um, right. you know, revisiting the place from which they came, you know? And the way they talked about it sounds a lot about the way you talk about Brownsville. Like yeah. the place that made us, the place we grew up, we've got, you know, it's, it's still in our head and our heart, no matter how old we, we grow up to be, you know? And they were yeah. that way. Like they love Orange Mound and they grew up blocks from each other and, and they got wow. to go back to their own hometown. We just said, you know, we'll get you over here. Um, if y'all drive us around Brown, uh, around Orange Mound. And like I said, it, yeah. it was, um, and it's so funny, like, you know, they were one of my favorite groups growing up. Cause you know, I really try to represent, you know, the state I come from when those artists come out. But, you know, just, um, you know, I remember my cousin lived in Orange Mound and, you know, just stopping in. And, you know, you hear all these stories. You know, I, I remember growing up, my mom was like, she didn't want me to go to Memphis. She was like, you can go anywhere, but you can't go to Memphis. <laughs> and I was like, okay then. But, you know, as a kid, when someone tells you you can't do something, you want to go see what it's about. You know what I'm saying? So I was like, I got to go see what Memphis is about for myself. And, you know, I had a great time. I, every time I've been in Memphis, I've had a great time. And, and I tell people, I say, you know, uh, safety is, is where you go and who, you, who you're with. You know what I'm saying? So don't ever get it misconstrued that, you know, something can't happen to you because you're in a nice neighborhood. I said, you got to know where you're at and who you're with. So I always felt safe when I'm with the right people because, yeah, I'm not from the area, but they still embrace me because of who I'm with. And, uh, you know, that episode was just fun because I've listened to so many songs of those guys and, you know, kind of like they poured everything into a song and everything into an album. And when they go back, you know, 
they just represent Memphis. When you say, you know, triple six mafia, you say all these different groups from Memphis is that we'd be like, okay, all these guys come from a tough area, but they were able to get out of it. But still, we all like to go back to hometown. You know, you think about eight ball. I don't think I think about is those, those dudes represent Memphis, man. They represent Memphis to the, to the fullest. And even from the Penny Hardaways, uh, it doesn't matter who come from Memphis. It's still going to be home because everyone had a struggle. You know, even me from a small town is that there was a struggle at some point in time. But you never take your eye off, off, the, off the big picture. And that is, you know what, I believe in myself and I know I can get out of this situation. And I surrounded myself with the right people that, you know, they held me accountable. Yeah, absolutely. Tony, man, I got to I gotta just brag on John T a little bit, read a little bit of his resume before we let him go. No, you don't. No, you don't. Yeah. Yes, you did, man. <laughs> Let's get to it, man. Get this hey, man his flowers right now. He wrote a, a book called The Pot Liquor Papers, A Food History of the Modern South in 2017. Questlove in 2018 listed that as one of his top 10 favorite books to read. He recently referenced the book again in an interview in Rolling Stone about how, you know, so food, I love it, but it's killing me. So I got to stop eating it and I'm losing all this weight. And he referenced John T's work again. He's also been on CBS This Morning. He's also been on Iron Chef. Me and my wife love some Iron Chef. So I need to go back and find that episode where you were on there. Um, and just my one more question too. Like when you're on a show like that, or if you're judging uh, yeah. chopped or top chef or something like that when you get to that level of expertise that you all have with food and say if, if jeffrey zakarian said a plate of food in front of me i'm gonna eat it and enjoy it they <laughs> eat it and say ah the sauce was a little bit too thick is it even fun to to be that critical of something that delicious i mean it's it's play like if you're on a set like the only one i've really done multiple times is is iron chef and everybody there is playing like it it they're taking it seriously but they're also kind of laughing at themselves at the same time um you know it's a big experiment um they're doing something ridiculous they're cooking this beautiful food in 60 minutes and they really do it in that period of time um but it's like theater you know and they're all having fun um and that part of it i'm doing the same thing like i'm taking a bite of something and it's wordplay, you know, it's, it's like, what's the funny thing I can say or that's accurate, that's not making fun of something, but how do you be playful? And that, that's a good gig, you know? Right. Yeah. I, I don't want I don't want to put you on the spot, you know, and say what's your favorite restaurant, but just give us a, a couple of foods that, that you really enjoy eating. You know, if you had to come down and say, hey, you got to choose two or three meals to eat the rest of your life, what would those two or three meals be? Wow. Um, I love hot water cornbread. Um, Ooh, okay. Y'all know hot water cornbread? That, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That definitely. Yeah. Happened. yeah. <laughs> um, so for people who are listening to this, don't know hot water cornbread, it's basically cornbread made with boiling water, near boiling water, um, into the dough, oftentimes cooked either like a hoe cake flat or like a fist of cornbread. And it's got a creamy center and the outside's usually crunchy and crispy. Um, I love that style of cornbread, and and uh, there's a place in Nashville I love called Silver Sands. Silver so Sands. Vaughn runs it. Um, that episode. And uh, it was in our it was in our Nashville episode, and, yeah. and she um, she's an amazing woman. If you ever get to Nashville, and it's mm-hmm. lunchtime, 
She's open every day but Saturday for lunch. Um, okay. It's about, I just love that taste. I love that, that outside exterior and that creamy interior. Love it. Um, and the other thing I crave all the time is greens, any kind of greens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, especially mustard greens, like mustard, mustard greens. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's a place in, in, uh, just outside of New Orleans in Kenner. Like when you're coming <clears> in from the airport, that's Kenner. And, uh, it's a place called Hearst family restaurant. It's been open since like 1939. Oh God. And, uh, Felton Hearst is the, the father and he makes the best greens I've ever had to use. He uses pigtails and hawks and uses like three different greens there's a lot of mustard in them they're remarkably good um i mean those are my favorite foods okay greens and cornbread okay barbecue can't go, I like with, can't go wrong with those at all yeah. one more thing tony john is john t is the director of the southern foodways alliance uh so i just gotta ask two-part question you know sure. book this show the director of the alliance there at Ole miss what are you most proud of as far as your accomplishments? I know you're going to accomplish more things. What are you the most proud of? And will we see True South come to Netflix anytime soon so we can just bend it? <laughs> um, that's, I mean, you know, it all fits together. Like, the reason I'm doing this show is because I've been doing Southern Freeways Alliance work and writing work for a long time before that. Like, I learned how to do this show when I didn't even know I was learning how to do this show. Wow. Um, so it all connects up. Um, I, right now, the thing I most love doing is this show because it brings all that together. Um, the Southern Foodways Alliance work, like we've been doing oral history work. In other words, going out and interviewing old guard pitmasters and fried chicken cooks and mm. like for, for 20 years now. And, you know, we did a film about Helen a decade ago. Um, we did oral histories with Helen a decade ago. It all adds up to get to where we are now. Right. Um, and uh, man, I, I love telling these stories and I love telling stories of the South. I'm, I'm proudly from the South. I'm also often very critical of the South because, you know, to be critical of your people is to want more out of your people in your place. And I think that's mm. important. It's an important responsibility. Um, and uh, I want to keep doing more of this. I want more people to see it. Um, so, um, you know, Netflix, Hulu, you know, any of those kinds of platforms would be good. But I have to say, man, you know, SEC Network took a chance on this show. And it's, right. it, you know, that's real vision. And I've got real allegiance to the network for that and to, right. and to the conference. So um, I want more people to see it. Um, but I love where I am. It's a good place to be. Okay. Great, great job. So up Thank next, up next is Columbus, Georgia. As on, I just finished with Brownsville, on to Columbus, Georgia. So definitely can't wait to see what's in store for that one. There are three words: jerk fried chicken. Okay. Okay then. Yeah. I'll, I'll be sure to tune in. <laughs> Columbus, Columbus is not far, and when there is a good meal. I'm like yourself. I will drive. Trust me. All right. Good. Good. Yeah, so day. generous. I really enjoyed the conversation with y'all. Yeah. Thank you. We appreciate we, it. We appreciate you, and maybe love to have you on again down the road sometime if if there's so Of course. Thank you so much, John T. We really thank, appreciate. Thank y'all very much, Vinny. Thank, thank you, Tony. You.
Take care. All right, y'all too. John T. Edge, SEC Network, True South, fresh off the Brownsville episode, TD. That was great, man. Like I said, um, you know, just just getting a chance to relive my childhood. You know, sometimes I forget it. As we get older, you know, you you have memories, you reflect on certain things. But when someone actually go to your hometown and then you can actually see them on TV, it's real. You know, because I never thought as a young kid, you know, where I was going to be 10, 15 years, you know, playing basketball. Like, where was this, where was this game going to take me, man? I'm doing all this walking around, riding my bike, man, getting chased by dogs. <laughs> I'm like, man, is, is it worth it? You know what I'm saying? Like, you're young, you really don't even think about it, man. It's, you know, playing basketball in the sun, you know, and it's just like going in the house with dirty clothes, you know, to the point where you couldn't even come in the house to take all you take your shoes off, your socks, your shorts, and, you know, I'm just like, man, all this for basketball? But, like I said, I loved it. And you love something, man. You give it your all. Absolutely. So we had to pivot for a little bit. You know, we, we of course, we're going to be here all season. Our cats are struggling. They're one and four. But we, had to, we had to pivot and hit with John T. first because, mm. you know, we had to do that. But one and four, man, as the, the uh, worst halftime deficit Saturday against Notre Dame, down 22, the biggest halftime deficit in the history of Rupp Arena. <laughs> they lose by one, come back in the second half. But what was what's, what's going on? What's, we know I still think it's, it's a chemistry issue and then it's just trying to figure out <clears throat> who's going to make the game easy for someone else. You know what I'm saying? I think it's it's a, you know, and, and I don't, I don't want to blame AU for everything that goes wrong with 18-year-old kids to come in because the first – the first thing we point to, oh, man, AAU, they play all these games, AAU. But you still got to learn how to play basketball the right way. And, you know, when you have so many talented players who've never really played together and who've always been, you know, the go-to guy, the guy that can take any shot, you know, and be in position where they can help a team win, now they're just really trying to find each other, man. They, they don't really know each other. You know, to me it's like a – it's like a really good high school team going against college players right now. And when you have assistant coaches, their job is to go out and scout players and take their strength, strength away from them. Um, and I think a lot of times in high school, because you're so talented, you get away with a lot of stuff. You get away with, with some, bad, some bad habits. And until you make that adjustment, is you're going to struggle for a while. You know, I, 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 I – Previous episode, my first year was a struggle, man. I was like, gosh, you know, when I just annihilated high school players and I got to college, I was like, man, it's hard to get five points. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, man, I'm a- I average 38 points a game. I'm like, dude, it's gonna, I'm going to make this transition. I'm going to be averaging. But once again, you know, it becomes a thinking man game. Now it's about IQ. Everybody is talented, athletic, and can you outthink that person that's in front of you? Can you, I think, the coaching staff that's been watching hours of game footage on you, you know, and they have – they're giving that opponent an edge. They're giving, their, they're giving their players an edge on how to guard your team, how to guard you as an individual. And then that's when, like I said, you know, you got to be able to make adjustments and, like I said, make plays for other people. But when you don't know, when they cut your strength off, what to do, you see struggle. Now that leads me to, you know – Cal is, you know, his press conference, his call-in show, 
this year, last year, year before, you know, we got to fight. We got to fight. We got to fight. You kind of harping on that fight. Was, was that something that was harped on when you were on the staff with, with Harrelson and them, or is it just the thing that's more recent? Is it, do kids now these past few years not know how to fight or be tough or, or. I I think it's, I think it's vice versa, man. When you, when you play so many games is that, you know, if you lose an AAU game, you got another game coming. You know, like I said, it's always, like I said, it's a mandatory three to five games you're going to get. So you lose one game, and before you know it, because yeah, they just, you know, getting pushed around, getting bullied, and, you know, and he keeps talking about fight, fight, fight. And I just wonder, is, is it just the, the kids is recruiting or is it, a, is it a, a problem just, you know, not trying to bash these kids now, but I don't know. I just no, I, I don't think you bash these kids because, like, at the end of the day, you know, even though kids might reclassify, is I just think not having a preseason makes a huge difference, man. When you, when you have months to really work with someone, you come in, you know, you also not only – practicing you get a chance to play pickup basketball and mm-hmm. when I was there um even as a coach and even as a as a player you know former players would come back you know so then you get a chance to play against those pros and those guys are getting you ready for collegiate basketball and then you can kind of figure out okay man what what I need to work on and then like you know I remember Rex and Kenny Kenny Skywalker those guys were telling me because I, I was curious about the NBA oh man you got to work on this right here okay so during the season I'm gonna work on this and I knew it was gonna make me a better player and I really studied the game I think what these kids are not doing a lot of and you know as as I train kids and talk to kids they do not watch enough basketball and I'm not talking about just no highlights like oh I'm gonna watch a player dunk and go between his legs and all the flashy plays you have to watch a game from start to finish And, and just think about this V how many kids do you think can just sit there and watch a whole game from start to finish? The attention span isn't what it used to be for as far no. as it goes, is it? No, uh-uh. Because they got their phone. They like, they like this, they phone, okay? <laughs> All right. And then next thing you know, they they get up. They're gone. I'm like, dude, we talking about watching the Super Bowl, and kids don't even watch the Super Bowl. I'm, I'm like, yeah. dude, it's, just a, it's not only the most watched game <laughs> in the world, how can you get up and walk away if you say you love that sport? And even for us who don't, who might not love football, is that, you know, we, we, we all try to watch, you know, the Super Bowl. So that's what I'm saying. Like, like kids have gotten away from really being a real student of the game. And that's not trying to, trying to cheat through um, how to improve and how to get better instead of watching and learning, seeing it with your eyes, being visual. And then in your mind, like even with myself, I would just process, what would I do in that situation? Okay, man, you know, shot clock winding down. Uh, what spot I need to get to on the floor? Who I wanted to set the screen? I'm already envisioning like what's going to happen when we get to that point. Now, if we never get to that point, then cool, I'm fine with it. But if it ever happens, I know where I need to get to, who I need to pass the ball to. Like I'm always thinking outside the box, and it's hard for – not all the generation, but some generation because it's like so many things have been scripted for them, organized for them. So they really had to really just be a director and organize something for themselves and say, hey, you know what? 
I'm going to take responsibility for this. Like, okay, call on the team. Like somebody, let's say who, I don't know who the leader on the team is, but what if their leader decides, hey, man, I'm going to call a team meeting. We need to sit down and kind of figure out what we're going to do the next five to ten games. What are going to do the next game? Like, what's our plan? So now when I start talking to these guys, we need to some kind of way be on the same page because if I'm thinking one thing, you're thinking another, and this person's thinking something else, another person, like, you've got too many different thoughts going on. But collectively, we need to figure out how can we all get on the same page. And I think that it just there's a there's a disconnect right there from you know the players that are the elite players supposedly, the players that are there, and no one really knows their role. So it's like they don't have an identity. And the coaching staff is just searching. I heard Cal said that normally the the scouting reports aren't that extensive because. He said, we don't want to overwhelm them with a lot yeah. of information. But he's like, he's like, maybe we need to give them harder scouting reports. Maybe he's even looking at that. Maybe we need to give them more mm-hmm. stuff because maybe what we're doing isn't working. So I don't, you know, so they're even like looking at every little detail of what they're doing because the stuff he's been doing for the past few years, look, I just want teams, I just want my team to worry about us more so right. than the scouting report on the other team. That's been Cal's deal all these mm-hmm. years. But now he's like, well, maybe I need to, I need to thicken up the information in the scouting report. So they are like, they're like, no, leaving no stone unturned as to searching for what they can try to do to get this fixed. Well, I, I think they got, like I said, man, it's 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 um, trying to figure out how to get these guys motivated from start to finish, and not have them lose interest, not get down by that many points, knowing that you know you had a chance to win the game, but. Think about all the mistakes you made in the first half, how hard you didn't play, you know, and whether it was an early game or not, that team has to play early too. So I hate when people make excuses, well, it's an early game. They, they don't play well. Do you think the other team, they didn't play early? You know, you, you're not playing against yourself. But also understanding what I need to do to help my team. What is my job? What is my role? And it takes a few games really for a coaching staff to figure out what do you do well? And we're not talking about what you do well at practice or what you did well in high school. I don't care about that anymore. Like, that got to be behind you. Like, what you did in high school, like I said, that's in high school. You got to move past that. How can you impact the collegiate game when the game is a little bit faster, you're playing with better players, um, the scouting report, they have a scouting report on you now. So you're not a mystery when you come in, you know, you playing against the opponent. Oh, you know, he's really good going right, but he is like a 20% shooter going left. They know that. So I'm taking your tendencies away from you. And you have to have a mechanism in your head that that's instinctive. You know, you don't want a robot out there. You know, it's, it's great to give a, give a team a game plan. Hey, we're going to execute this. But what would a coach, when he makes an adjustment, how are you going to adjust? That's the basketball IQ, and that's the instinct that kids struggle with because they really never had to deal with it. It's like, okay, everything has been good, good, good. How do I deal with adversity? So what they're going through right now is some adversity, and you're going to see how they come together. And then the coaches staff got to, you know, just got to keep putting game plans together to figure out, like, where, where's this team at? Where are they going to be? And when March roll around, you know, you want to hope that we've seen Cal team, you know, elevate their game, you know, get better, intensity levels better. They have a better understanding of who they are. They have an identity. And that might have to come 
earlier with this team because the way the season's going, how the conference is playing, it's going to be tough in conference, man. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be no cakewalk. Yeah. Now, I'm, you know, people listening to this might think I'm, I'm being overly negative. I'm just trying to be real. Kentucky, you know, second half, they, you know, come out down 22, start the second half, they outscore Notre Dame 37 to 16. They end up losing by one, of course. Notre Dame's a veteran team, but they only had seven scholarship players. They have kind of faded down the stretch, I think, against Michigan State, you know, games where they haven't been able to finish and close it out. Was it the combination of Kentucky playing hard and really digging in? Or was the fact that Notre Dame was a little bit thin and had a short rotation and kind of got a little bit tired? Is it a little bit of both or is it a little bit – what are you talking up to? When you, we, we, when they were saying Notre Dame, I'm like, man, they have a really good football team. That's all I was thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> I knew their football team was going to be good this year. So, you know, I, I kind of looked at the Georgia, the Georgia Tech game. Uh, you know, they had lost to Mercer and, um, yeah, Georgia, and Georgia State. State. So I'm like, yeah. you know – just to get us back on, you know, back back on track. And I didn't know a lot about Notre Dame. But, you know, when – it was funny because I was actually in uh, E-Town, Elizabethtown, and I walked into this this place where I was doing a signing. And uh, I was like, hey, what's the score? They said, we down 24, like 22 or 20, 20-something halftime. And I was like, man, get out of here. To Notre Dame, I'm like – are we playing a football team on the football field? Like that's the only way I, I thought we was gonna be down by that many points. Seriously, I'm, I'm not even I'm not even joking around. I'm like twenty. So then when they told me the the halftime margin, I really thought we was on the road. I can't even lie to you. And they said no, we're at home. And you should have seen the look on these Kentucky fans' faces. Like like it was it was we've never seen that kind of margin on the floor. Like I, I can't even during my time. I can't ever remember us being down by that many points at halftime. To to I'm not talking about to a good team, to a team that's okay. So mm-hmm. it would be different if you were down to a Gonzaga, who who is really good. They have three three future pros on their team. So you can look at it and be like, okay, talent wise, you know, hey, those guys are better than us talent wise, but not Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. So that, it just let me know that they wasn't ready to play right away. And when they finally decide to turn it on, you know. They just ran out of time, but you, you, you. But see, that's to me, that's a learning lesson to let guys know you're not good enough at this point to take your eye off anyone. I think just because we're playing this team and they're not ranked, that we should beat them. I said, no, man, you got to stand. Like people take playing Kentucky, they treat that like a Super Bowl, and especially when you can come into Rupp Arena to your home. Like you always must, you must always protect your home, and they didn't protect their home. Yeah, yeah. So UCLA this Saturday in Cleveland, then at Louisville the next Saturday, and then conference play, like you said. So, mm. hey man, hey, uh, we we used to have this um, right around Christmas time. I, I don't know if they're still going to do it, but we used to have dedication week, and during those five to seven days, you know, we would definitely get better in that time. And and Cal would normally not schedule games, especially when you got a when you have a young team like this. And you're off to such a bad start. You probably need, when school is out, about five to seven days where it's just practice, chemistry, going out, eating together, building that for the 2021 season. And knowing that you still have, you know, a couple tough non-conference games, 
But then when you get into conference, you got to be ready to play. Like, there ain't no taking no nights off. Like, you got to come into conference ready to play first game. And I, I think – I don't know how you send the message because, once again, we're dealing with a, a, with a young team. And this is probably one of his youngest teams. And um, no experience returning. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's hard for, you know, one player to lead another player when, you know, everybody is, everybody is coming in at, at the same. So there is no leader. So now they just it just so you just can't you just can't win with talent right now. You got to win with some with some guys who know how to play basketball. So you know that that's where there's a separation between talented players and players with a basketball IQ. Mm-hmm. Now on the flip side, the women are undefeated, and Kyra Elsie is no longer the interim coach. She is the head coach. So I was just waiting for that. You know, Kyra, a, an intelligent woman, someone I really enjoy working with. She knows the game extremely well. She learned so much from, from Coach Mitchell. And I'm just happy that she's getting her opportunity, you know, and, and that's really big for her. Not only, um, you know, becoming a head coach, but, you know, just a, uh, a black woman that's, that's passionate and loves the game. You know, she's giving her all to basketball and, um, you know, she's finally getting getting rewarded. You know, not only rewarded for, you know, just because, you know, Coach Mitchell stepped down, but at some point in time, you know, she was going to be a head coach. And why not be a head coach with someone you've been an assistant coach for, you know, a few years? And, you know, they have a really good team. And then, like, so now, you know, she – and here's the thing, too, Vinny. She's recruit, recruited most of these girls. So she, she has a great relationship with these girls. And it really helps as you go out recruiting – when other recruits can come in and the first question I was, I would ask, Hey, how do you like your coach? How's your coach? So I would know if there's a place I want to go. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Cause if she's cool, she understands the game. She pushes us. She's competitive. Is that you're going to take on the personality of your coach. And she's a fiery coach because like I said, who does she, who she play for? Pat Summit. Yeah. So, and, and we know how fiery she was. It was like, man, you know, she was, she had those those eyes that if you didn't play, you know, those eyes could look through your body. <laughs> she, she can see, hey, she can see your soul. She can see, hey, she can see your thoughts in your head. You know, she would just, but she was like I said, an ambassador for women coaching because of how fierce she was on the sideline, but her approach to the game, you know. So she instilled that in all her players, and that's one of the reasons why most of them have become really good coaches. Absolutely. Oh. I got a, a message from, from Matt Moderno. He hosts the Believe in Wizards podcast with Larry Hughes. And before you came on, Matt was the first guest ever to be on this podcast. I was doing a few episodes by myself. Matt came on. We talked NBA. We talked mm-hmm. Kentucky. We talked Wizards. He sent me uh, – it was actually the Ringer NBA show, and Kendrick Perkins was on there. They asked him, you know, who kind of showed him the ropes when he first came in. And he said Walter McCarty, and he said Tony Dell. When my first year in Boston, they were the ones that kind of take me and show me and, yeah. and help me. So he he mentioned you specifically by name yeah. on the podcast. So he sent me that, and so I had to you know pass yeah, that, it. On. That was that was my young dude, man. And and you know, and as I see him being an analyst now, I never would have thought he'd been an analyst. You know, of, of all the things <laughs> Big Perk is doing right now, I'm like Big Perk, man. You're supposed to be on somebody's sideline being a bodyguard to someone but no but you know what i tell you what 
he really learned the game, though. You know, he got a chance to see it, you know, from, you know, towards the end of your career, you really can learn a lot, you know, because you're not, you're not playing as much. And, you know, you kind of watching how things move and just how the game has changed, you know, because when, when Perk came in, you know, came straight out of high school. So we really had a good thing going in Boston. And we played hard. We competed. Um, we understood each other. And when you get a chance to to have veteran guys that teach you the game and teach you how to be a professional, like that's the most important thing is that even as I built my TD, TDBA Tony Basketball Academy is that, you know, I, I teach our kids, I'm like, man, you know, carry yourself in a way that represents you and your family. And, and when they see you, they see someone that's qualified, not someone that's, that's second guessing. And although, you know, you're going to, you're going to kind of figure some things out and make, make your mistakes. But even with Perkins, you know, he really understood, like, how am I going to stay in this league? Because you can be in the league and out the league in the same year. And I've seen guys mm-hmm. where they wasn't focused. They were just happy, well, I made it. And I'm like, no, dude, you really ain't made it until you can turn it into a career. Like, mm-hmm. one year is a few months. That's like I said, a cup of coffee, a cup of cappuccino. Yeah. Come on. It, it, it leaves you. So you have to be focused, and, and it's much harder when you're 18. So I, I commend him, man, for coming in and listening to guys like myself and Walter because I, I, wanted, I wanted these guys to have, have a career. You know, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't selfish, a selfish player that only cared about me. I was like, man, I, I got to share some of this knowledge with them because someone shared it with me. Exactly. A couple more quick things, man. First, the, the sad note, glad to hear that you're doing better, but Keontae Johnson at Florida – passed out on the floor Saturday against Florida State. Uh, Florida, the team, it had a lot of COVID issues. Was it cardiac? He was in a coma, right. medical coma for several days. Transferred him back to Gainesville. He was talking earlier today, but that was just, you know, people our age, you immediately thought hang gathers, man. Yeah, it, it was scary. And as soon as I heard that, that was the first person that came to mind was hang gather. Hank Gathers, uh, Reggie Lewis, you know, players that, that I grew up watching because I was a huge, when I tell you, huge All-American fan, man, I just, I love their style. And, um, you know, seeing Hank go down and, um, you know, it was, it was tough, man. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it was scary just to watch him, like I said, such a great athlete, uh, potential first-round draft pick, but a collegiate player that's, young i mean and you don't think you don't you don't think in terms like man you know i'm gonna collapse or you know it's this is gonna happen to me we just we feel like at that age we're invincible but it was a reality check i I would just i was surprised that they played the game because i i think it i would have been so dramatized and it would have affected me in a way where i I don't just think i could have just went back out there and gave like i wouldn't have had no focus like it would have that would have taken the energy out of my body Mm-hmm. And I could have been like, I'd have been like, coach, you know, I, I can't give you nothing right now, man. I'm, I'm thinking about my teammate. You know, you got to make a decision because that is your family, you know, because mm-hmm. about a month ago, a uh, kid fell and hit his head in, um, at our gym in the tournament. And we just stopped the game. We was like, game over with. That's it. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, we got to, you know, this kid got to go to the hospital and we're not going to play the game. So there ain't no question. Then we just made sure all the players left the building. So all the people in the building were the directors. And when the ambulance got there, um, you know, so 
I just thought it was tough to put your players in that situation. And probably if he were to do it all over again, they probably wouldn't have finished that game all because at the end of the day, it's not about that game. Mm-mm, not at all. So definitely hope he is able to continue to recover. And this is still yeah. something you got to watch long term. Absolutely. Because we don't know yet because this is this is the other phase of it. If you have yeah. it and you're covered, well, what, what's still happening with this cardiovascular stuff mm-hmm. that could be a problem, you know. So, yeah. And I, and I think I think a lot of athletes who have um, who have gotten it, you know, they got they, they probably got to go through a, a protocol of maybe getting physicals, you know, more often than than not, mm-hmm. you know, because if that could happen to him, and he, you know, we look at him, he's a he's he's a specimen, man. I mean, solid across the board, great size, big time athlete, mm-hmm. um, and if it could happen to him, like no one is is, is invincible to having the COVID and then trying to recover from it. Because even if, you know, when Cam Newton never was the same, you know, even watching Lamar Jackson on Monday night, I was like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, there was spurts. I'm like, he's still fast. Don't get me wrong. He's still going to catch him. And he still was, he still would lead him in the dust, but you know, he was catching cramps and, mm-hmm. you know, it does throw your rhythm off when you, because your body has gone through something that, you know, you hadn't experienced probably your whole life. Because even with Lamar Jackson, he was saying in those 10 days, he said, I just slept a lot. He said, I was just tired the whole time. So you can't imagine uh, at the height of of, of, uh, of your profession, man, you just all of a sudden just tired. I, I don't know what's going on. My body's not reacting the same. And then you got to come back. And in your mind as an athlete, I have to get back left off. So just imagine how much energy you are exerting in your mind and your body trying to get back to that point. So then you overexerting yourself. So there, there aren't aren't any studies we don't know so that's what i'm saying that makes it difficult for me uh when i think about them is that man you know what what about all the other kids that might have been affected how are they feeling about this mm-hmm. and last thing man i just i just got to backtrack you know because this was so so good we didn't get to squeeze it in last week but bam out of bio getting his house getting his mom a house and then when you walk in the door, they got a picture frame up of the single wide trailer they used to live in in North Carolina before he came to UK. So just to, and to see how happy he was to be able to do that for his mom, raise him by herself, walk to work, work mm-hmm. multiple jobs and work so hard, just, you know, and to, you know, for them to make it and just a, just a proud moment for him and for them, for sure. Well, like I said, it's a great story for someone who loved the game like Bam and and just his work ethic that he put into it. You know, he he was he wasn't just only doing this for himself. He was doing it for his mom. And when you you carry that burden, it, it makes you work that much harder because now you're not just it's not my struggle. It's it's our struggle. Mm-hmm. And that's what moms do, man. When they they're single parents, that they make ends meet. You know, they you know we can probably go down the line of so many uh, single parents or you know so many guys entertainment, um, sports figures that came from, you know, that one parent, a single parent, and they made it. You know, sometimes that pushes you even harder, man, you know, because you feel like, man, the other parent might have given up on me or, or they gave up on us. And so now when you step out there, you piss, man. Like, it's, it's a whole other kind of ang- anger that you have, especially when you love your mom the way he loved his mom, man. It's like, man, you know what? I got you, mom. And that's, and that's the kind of guy he was. I remember seeing him like maybe two or three years ago 
at the at the Derby, Kentucky Derby, and uh, you know, just seeing how much you know how he felt, man, and just how humble he was, you know, just a a big old dude that loved basketball, and and when you can put yourself in position to to take care of your mom, it speaks volumes for just you know what she did as a as a single parent and how well she taught him, and him just staying humble, man, and and being rewarded at the end. Yeah, so congratulations to him and proud of him to be able to, to do that and for for grinding the way he has, like yes, you sir. said, to, to show his dad that, look, well, you, you don't need us, we don't need you. I we got you. your mom. I look got us. Did for her. No so, doubt. Man, no we got a bunch in today. Thanks to the legend, John T. Ed. John T. Ed, on. man. I know from, from here, from Georgia, man. You know, just yeah. down in Oxford, Mississippi, coming up with some great ideas, you know, taking taking his uh, his frame of mind to uh, NCC Network and them seeing his vision, man, and, and making it grow. You know, I think that's when I tell kids, you know, don't let anyone, you know, close the door on your dream. You have to believe in yourself. And even as you become <laughs> – you know, in your 40s or 50s, don't mean you still can't be successful, you know. And that's one thing that just watching what, what John T. does with him and Wright is that, you know, they collaborate, they think about it, and they go to these small towns and they give people hope. You know, they let people know, like, small-town America, you know, they get it done as well. You know, it's not it's not going to be glamorous. It's not going to be the, the fame and all the lights that, that comes on, comes with it. But what they know is, you see the love, you see the dedication, and you see people who enjoy a small town. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to watch everybody in Brownsville already watch the show, you and everybody you know, and I can't wait till everybody listens to us talking about the show from Brownsville. And of course, uh, everybody, don't forget Lots of Rain, our, our buddies Dave and Ben doing that. Uh, definitely go to Lots of Rain as they continue to sponsor the podcast. And it's always up on the Sea of Blue. And, of course, Believe.com, Believe Podcast Network, bringing all this to you. So appreciate all that. And just keep checking out the episodes. Get yourself a watch. Listen to this episode. And we'll still be here. If the cats turn around, cats struggle, we'll be here talking about it every week. We will. All right, people. Enjoy. Happy holidays. And if we you don't hear from us, Merry Christmas. Absolutely. Subscribe, rate, review. We'll see y'all next time on Believe in Kentucky. Deuces. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube